Welcome back, Guild members. For those of us who are educators, we are seeing growth and opportunities to engage in discourse, research, and training on how to support our neurologically diverse students, and rightly so. But less common to encounter are conversations about how we can utilize what works for kids to widen the circle and help the adult learners in our systems too. Well, we're going to have that conversation right here at this Guild meeting. Even better, we've got a guest with considerable expertise joining us. This is one you're sure not going to want to miss. Welcome to the Grounded Learners Guild, the podcast that gets real about education, authentic leadership, and the transcendent power of being a part of a highly functioning team. Here are your hosts, Casey Veach, Emily Coakland, and me, Jenny Labrie. Believe it or not, the Oxford English Dictionary now recognizes adulting as a word. And although it may be polarizing or have a generational slant to it, it really boils down to the fact that millennials face a different landscape than their parents or the younger Gen Z generation. With that in mind, let's throw an additional ingredient into the adulting blender here, neurodivergence. The neurodivergent children of the 80s and 90s have grown into adults that make up our friends, our colleagues, and even our guild members. And so with that in mind, we have this intention today to consider neurodivergent in our adult learners and expand our knowledge to help us best meet not just the neurotypical, but truly all learners, especially if we talk about all learners. In every case, this really applies here. Today we have in this episode a guest, Dr. Jamie Jansen Casey, a dual licensed psychologist and social worker and mom of three young adults. She has experience in both the personal and professional realm with neurodiversity and therapeutic programming. And how did we get such a stellar guest to join us for this episode? Well, it helps to have a connection, and this one is all in the family. So I'm very honored and proud to have Jamie, who is my dearest cousin and the older sister that I never had, join us. Awesome. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Absolutely. We're so excited to have you here because of your experience, both on a professional level and as our listeners will learn on a personal level. So it's fantastic. The first thing we want to do, because this for me, I will be very honest, is a learning episode. I'm so excited to hear both, Jamie, the stories that you have and also the stories that Emily has. But I think it's important that we establish a common language, both for us here as learners, but also for our listeners. So there are several terms that we want to define first and foremost. And the first term is neurodivergent. We've used it several times already. So Jamie, if you could talk a little bit about what that term means in your professional lens to start. Neurodivergent can be impacted by many things. Executive functioning, cognitive intelligence, socioeconomic factors. Overall, it is a word that covers an umbrella of I learn differently than the average student that sits in the chair, child, student, teenager, or even an adult learner. It basically means that I take information in and I do not process it, retain it, move it from short-term memory to long-term memory, or even if I do remember it, struggle to recall it. Okay. And need additional ways of being able to encode that information to be able to bring it out and recall vocabulary words or definitions or other ideas. 
and sometimes takes two to three times longer to imprint that in my head versus another student who can read it and have it remembered in 30 minutes. And then the opposite of that then, that student who can more easily remember it in say a 30 minute time span versus a neurodivergent student who it may take upwards of two hours or beyond, that's neurotypical. Mm -hmm. Correct. So a typical student, really, when you think about it, what really is a typical student, but someone who can, using common structures, remember things more easily. Emily, would you agree with that too? Yeah, absolutely. My far less informed definition really would have been my brain learns this differently, like you had said, Jamie, just like my brain does this in a different way. And again, this being learning. Another way of adding to that is when you're talking to an adult is what's hard about learning. Yeah. Why is learning hard for you? Mm-hmm. I so, love that. <laughs> so I'm writing it down. Yes. Casey's <laughs> taking notes over here. I am. Like uh, I said, this is a learning opportunity yeah. for me. And yeah, any opportunity I can get to learn something new is great. Now, our episode is titled Neurodivergence and Hacking Your Brain. Emily, you wanted to say something very specific about this before we move on. Right. I think it's important to me to establish a bit of a line here that we want to make sure that we are letting our listenership know and just speaking to learners in general that when we are sharing hacks or strategies or things that can be used to assist neurodivergent people, those fixes are for themselves. We are not in any way suggesting that people who are are neurodivergent need to streamline themselves to better fit into society's expectations of what a learner should be or make neurotypical folks more comfortable. The thought is really people who are neurodivergent engage in hacks to better themselves and better their own experience. And that's why we want to share hacks today. Well, and I think it ties back, Jamie, to your question that I wrote down. It's a way for you to find a solution to that question of what's hard about learning for you. Mm -hmm. It's identifying what that thing is is in order to make yourself successful and what are the strategies you can use right and the Mm -hmm. i mean and the strategies are always positive and they're multiple ways of tweaking and accommodating but the reality is child or adult we have to make the choice first to use them if we don't choose to use them and we don't choose to try them and we don't choose to stay in it and repeat it over and over and over again they're just hacks The hacks plus the person's tenacity and drive are what makes it work. I love that. Absolutely. Sorry, mental health hat on. No, no, no. no, I love that. I love that. Mm -hmm. We've had this conversation in the past just between us three, the difference between a hack and a skill. Like you start with the hack until you have that skill become a part of who you are. And that's what you just said about you have to be intentional about how you're using the strategies. So I think that it's really interesting as we talk about all of these vocabulary terms, but really where this starts to hit home is when we really do the story time, when we really think about how this impacts the day-to-day and there's stories behind people that experience this type of lifestyle. And so why don't we start out with Emily? This was your original idea of having this particular episode come to life. Why don't we start with, we have a couple of stories we can go through, but let's talk about your first idea for why we are doing this episode and what that means to you and what you'd like to say about your own personal experiences with neurodivergence. 
So my heart goes out to neurodivergent children and adults because that is my life experience. And I kind of wanted to talk it through. And like we've done with some of the other things, like in failure episode, we've really worked to share stories to normalize some of these ideas. And I want to normalize the way adults talk about their neurodivergence and recognize what they've been through as children, as learners, and change that conversation as we start talking about ourselves as adult learners to make it more all-encompassing and really engage neurodivergent learners from where they're at. So in order to begin with that normalization, I want to talk about what my experience is. Long story short, I am neurodivergent because I am ADHD and attentive type. I did not learn this until I was an adult, however. Well, children in the 80s and 90s and 70s, like when we were growing up, if there wasn't a behavioral problem, the invisible band-aid of what's going on in our head is not seen and it's not acknowledged and we just figure out a way to get through it until we're old enough and have enough information to be going, hmm, something's not right here. It's interesting that you point that out because that really is in large part the behavioral issue is what got put on me as a learner. I was considered bored gifted, disenfranchised gifted. I was able to get the grades and do the homework and I was able to keep up with my learning, which was why I think there was no real effort or need to identify me at that point in time. Cause again, I was, haha, I'm the oldest of the three of us. So I was going to school in like the eighties and nineties legit. And they were not really looking at me as a problem in terms of how I was learning or retaining the information or demonstrating my knowledge, the problem was my behavior. Daydreamy, inattentive, unfocused, and then after a while, sassy, has a mouth. All of the behavioral stuff. And again, I had some really great teachers in elementary, but I think just the general discourse about learners like me had not quite caught up to what was going on in my brain. And there were points in time where I was labeled a problem because I never looked or presented like I was paying attention to anything. And often they would have to like stop class and be like, Emily, take out the right book. I just was doing other stuff in my mind. What was it that made you come to that realization into your adulthood that there was something that you could do about it or there was actually a diagnosis or what was the catalyst to have you finally get that diagnosis or finally get what that thing was going on named? So it's no accident that we mention adulting in the intro to this because it was a full plate of adult responsibilities. I was maybe two and a half years into teaching ELA, so I had a full plate of grading and assessment tasks to do with my own students. I was in graduate school at the time. I had an apartment of my own and just had all the general household upkeep that I was trying to do, and it caught up with me. That's a great example of what happens is the older we get, the more we have on our plate. So as we're younger and we're just getting through high school, for example, the stress, the needs, the requirements don't outweigh your coping. But as we adult, we get more and more and more put on our plate and our ability to work through that changes because we have less time, strategies, energy to understand what's going on and manage the demand. So the task demand is different from the ability to cope and it gets harder as we grow up. 
hundred percent is what happened to me. So I had a couple of incidents where I had like forgotten things and like left things in weird places. And then it started to just be more where what I initially sought help for was anxiety because I would wake up in the middle of the night and like, I'm forgetting something. There's something else I should have done. What is it? What is it? What is it? And I was just like in my mind, really anxious and distressed about having forgotten things in the past and worried about dropping that ball in my adult life. I'm going to miss an assignment for grad school. I'm going to not be caught out on grading and a parent or administrator is going to call me out. I was just really worried about that juggling act. Like you said, Jamie, I just couldn't keep up with it anymore. My plate was too full. And so I initially sought help for anxiety. But the more the psychologist that I was seeing at the time, and I discussed the cause of my anxiety, it was really this idea that I was struggling with my executive functioning. So he actually called that out as a possibility that we might want to explore, look into, ask my level of comfort exploring that. And I said, yeah, let's see. I'd rather know and be able to move forward from this. And so then came the typical ADHD questionnaires and a few more of those task-oriented things too with attentiveness. I think there was something where I had to like press a button on the computer. You familiar the CPT. With that one? Yes. Yes, the CPT. Jamie's nodding her head like she uses yep. that. <laughs> yep. All the time. <laughs> yes. Um, can I, I'm only going to interject for one moment because this term has come up several times. And for anyone who's not maybe in the education sphere who's listening and is of our generation may need help defining the phrase executive functioning. Ooh, okay, what but does dumb. that mean? Well, executive functioning actually comes from your frontal lobe of your brain. It's everything in the front and it's the last lobe to develop. 18, 19, 20, 21, your executive functioning skills are still developing. It's your filter. It's your power of pause. It's your ability to plan. It is your ability to estimate time and think how long will this project really take me. It's the ability to problem solve and understand the give and take to be able to plan. And we hear a lot about executive functioning within the sphere of education for right. children. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, Jamie, that you're talking about, like, that's not fully developed until your adolescence or early adulthood. So it's just really interesting, especially, I guess this is a question, I'm kind of going off the cuff here, but maybe you know the answer, maybe you don't. But why are there some children that have executive functioning skills that are actually pretty decent? And then there are kids that don't that really, really struggle and need a lot more support. And then how does that play into as you age? I would tell you that the executive functioning skills, as like Emily said, is awareness and maturity. I have to be acknowledging that I have trouble. And now what am I going to do about it? And the children in elementary school, you see executive functioning, forget their homework forget to take their books home. Their backpacks are a mess. In high school, I did my homework, but I forgot to turn it in. Or I waited too long to do the research project that's due tomorrow, and I'm staying up until four in the morning to finish it. That is really related to brain development. And the key to make a kid successful isn't it really expect them to have the ability to self-regulate. It's a team. Parents extremely need to be involved and a lot of micromanaging. Is this done? Is this done? Is this done? With that transitioning to, let's look at this as a week scope. What's due this week? And teaching them how to think 
differently that does not come naturally to their own brain. Yeah, it's almost like a slow release. So as a child goes into their adolescence, that goes into their young adulthood, that team of people that's helping them with that is almost giving them scaffolding until they can release that to them doing it independently. And sidebar, I had to giggle a little bit because I think you just shaved a couple of minutes off my story time segment because all of your exemplars were like talking about my school experience. I forgot this or I wasn't ready for this. Right there with you. But Emily, I'd be really curious to talk about the reality of where mental health is today too. Yeah. I've had research that I've read that said individuals with ADHD hear 100,000 negative messages in a year. Not like you horrible, horrible thing. It's how many times do I got to tell you? Didn't we talk about this already? A reality of an ADHD or neurodivergent is a lot of correction. And then that plays on a teenager's brain of why bother? I'm going to screw it up again anyways. And self-esteem and mental health, like you mentioned, anxiety, the fear that I'm going to screw up one mm-hmm. more time. That just sounds like it compounds the stress even more than just being an adult because now you're worried about... Now you're carrying shame yeah. along yeah. with it. And it, it's not just like messaging from the outside world. You internalize it and it kind of becomes a part of your self-messaging, or at least it did for me. Because yeah. I was going to mention that too, is that's one of the quote-unquote homework assignments that I got from my psychologist was to write down ways of describing the way my brain works that are negative. So... I would be like haphazard or sloppy and, you know, so just like writing down some of that stuff and then to like change it up, change the words that I'm using, change the vocabulary that I'm using, change the phrases that I'm using to talk about the way my brain works. And I slip up. I'm pretty sure I said something about my own mental disorganization literally in the previous episode, but I'm working on it. And I think that that is huge that we have to work on our messaging and how we talk to our other learners but also how we talk about ourselves. We need this. And that's a huge thing to try or even talk about. The hack is to reframe what we say to ourselves. That's a huge hack. So Emily, we talked a little bit about your story there. And I'd be interested to know, Jamie, depending on your level of comfort and what you'd feel like you'd like to share with us, is what is your story with, you talk about the neurodivergent umbrella in general, but what does this mean to you, not only your professional side, but your personal experiences with this type of learning? I didn't realize that I had trouble learning until I was in my doctoral level classes. I just kept going. So when I look back, I can see myself in fifth grade sitting on the couch with my dad and we're reading a social studies book and my eyes are reading it. I'm my words. I'm reading it out loud. And he turns to me and says, well, what did you just read? And I said, I don't know. And he got angry at me, of course, not understanding what was going on. How can you possibly not know? You just read it to me. And not connecting the dots that on all my high school report cards, I got good grades. I turned in the homework. But when you looked at the finals and the test grades, they were awful. D's and F's. But my work ethic and wanting to do well, I had to work twice as hard. Not really getting good grades until almost my master's level when I maturity started to sync with the ultimate goals. 
But when I was getting my doctorate, my licensure time came and I didn't pass the first time. I thought, okay, no big deal. Some people just don't pass. The second time I didn't pass. Okay, what's going on? I'm really good at what I do. I'm a horrible test taker. I'm horrible at word recalls. So I take it the third time and I failed it by three points. Oh, man. And just went into a major spiral and depression. The negative self-talk. I'm a loser. I'm an idiot. And just, like, shaming myself all over. So then the counselor, the psychologist that I was working with, we talked more about the impact of dyslexia. The impact of not being able to retain what I just read. And not just being able to remember it, but the struggle to recall it. So when you're taking a test and you've studied four years for this test and you get to the test question and you still can't pluck that information out of your brain as easily and access it like your peers, you're like, what is going on? So chronic stress that knowing that my peers can go and read a book and remember the material for an hour and I needed five hours to retain it. Eventually, he convinced me to try ADHD medication. And ADHD medication isn't just for ADHD or hyperactivity. It actually, with showing great progress with chronic learning disabilities, how I could study from two hours and not retain anything and go to study to four hours and actually remember what I was retaining. It's slowing your brain down enough to move the information from short-term memory to long-term memory and being able to recall it and creating a variety of hacks and spending hours and hours of trying to retain information. (laughs) Learning shouldn't be that hard. (laughs) No doubt. It does talk to not only finding the skills that worked for you and the tenacity you needed to stick with it because I was there where each and every test... You and I would debrief on how you were feeling about that. Without sounding too corny, I'm just so proud of you because you kept going and you kept going and you kept going until you finally passed this thing. And I think it just speaks to anyone out there as a testament to anyone that is neurodivergent with that tenacity and with some skills. You're Dr. Jamie Jansen. You've made it to where mm-hmm. you set your goals out and you were still able to do it. But man, it's been a road, hasn't it? Yeah, to say the least. It's been a road. It's had a lot of ups and downs and frustrations and why bothers. But having a support team around you to encourage you, to help you know that it's not because you're broken or a loser or stupid. It's none of that. I'm yep. a great psychologist. I'm a crappy (laughs) test taker. (laughs) Yep. And someone had to tell me, which was really important to learn, that my struggles with taking this test can't define me as a person. Okay? Making sure that you take that part of you and acknowledge that it's hard, but not have that part of you define your success or your soul. Mm Mm-hmm. First of all, I can tell you're an excellent psychologist just from listening to you talk here. Like, there's a few things that you have already mentioned that have been like, okay, like, light, I'm already light on page brain. two of notes. Yes, Casey. <laughs> I feel like I need to tip you or something. 
Free counseling session. <laughs> free. <laughs> yeah. awesome. And that idea of not defining yourself, and again, that whole cognitive reframing thing that I had had to do was literally about, I'm not a jerk. I don't hate learning. I'm not mean to my teachers. I'm not disengaged. I'm not a slob. I am just a person who struggles with my executive functioning, and I can mm-hmm. still learn. So it that's so important. It is, but until you know what your struggle is and why you're struggling... Uh, the humanness in us creates us to blame ourselves and think yeah. what's wrong with us. Mm-hmm. So, And I think this conversation is every bit as important to neurotypical people or also educators and also family members. Mm-hmm. So when we even just think of the impact that we have as a support team, the more and more we get into education, the more I'm just seeing the absolute need for personalized learning because of reasons like this the yeah, no offense teachers yeah it doesn't work yeah <laughs> the, the standardized yeah the standardized yeah. way of teaching doesn't, doesn't work. work we need Mm-mm. to personalize people's learning experiences and the more we can tap into and hear these stories and realize that there is a solution mm-hmm. and that's really drawing out the uniqueness of our learners and what they need and being able to be part of that solution and our learners crucial. today what you have in your classrooms today isn't what I was up against. You know, I graduated in 92, and we didn't have the pressure of getting an AP class taken freshman year. Or we didn't have the pressure of having 15 AP classes by the end. What we're putting on our students today, this academic Demic stress load to just strive to be the best they can. If you can't leave high school with good grades and a good self worth, we're not doing a good job. Well put. Preach. I just keep thinking about what you said, Jamie, about that negative self talk. And if we try to fit kids into that standard learning box, we are limiting their ability to fall in love with learning, Mm -hmm. to find out what they love, and they're going to have to unpack all of that. Yes, because learning to them is exhausting. Right. It's nothing but a shame spiral. It's nothing but something that causes me distress. It's a shame spiral, but it's hard. Yeah. Like, if the time and energy that it takes for neurodivergent to get it, the aha moments, the light bulbs... Mm -hmm. And constantly being disappointed that it just does not flow is exhausting. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about how learning can be really challenging for the neurodivergent. If we were to move into the hack section, I'm going to let Casey take this away as far as like the question and answer section. But I think that this is a really good point in the conversation to really start talking about what does that mean now that we know better now that we are hearing these stories or now that we understand the connection between not only the learning, but also the mental health, where else do we go with this? So far, I've heard us mention two hacks or two strategies. The first one that I've heard is the reframing. So turning our negative self-talk into a more positive self-talk. Also, that compartmentalization. Just because I'm not good at test-taking doesn't mean that I won't be successful. Separating those two pieces out. What are some other hacks that can help people who find themselves having an answer to that question, what's hard about learning for me? What are some other strategies that we can offer as a collective group here? 
but I was actually kind of thinking that we may or may not have thrown in a third strategy, and that was that idea of engaging in personalized learning. And again, Mm -hmm. that comes more from a person working with neurodivergent and neurotypical learners, like the ability to move through things at your own pace or in your own way is such a different way of learning. And that's one of the ones I think that the discourse and the understanding of how well that works really has opened up from when we talk about kids. And I even heard us slip back into it. We were talking about kids, which really as educators, that's where a lot of our focus rightly goes. But on the flip side, when we try to think about adults, think about the way like grad school worked. Is it any wonder it caught up with me in grad school or caught up with you in your doctorate? It's very traditional tests and lectures and the type of personalized learning we would offer kids is not necessarily offered to adults. And when I think about hacks in terms of those of us who work with, folks who are neurodivergent, personalization is a systemic change. Yeah. It is a systemic change. All the way when up. I was going to school, it was about, were you an auditory learner or a mm-hmm. visual learner? That's mm-hmm. it. So it has grown quite a bit. I would say the hacks aren't how you learn. Okay? That's too simplistic. The hacks are truly backing it up to understanding how you encode information. Mm-hmm. You gotta know what gets in the way of why you're not encoding. Is it attention? Is it hyperactivity? Is it your eyes are bouncing up and down the page when you're reading a sentence? Is it other issues of why you're not encoding the information? And even if you can figure out why you're not encoding and you can make hacks to help you encode, then the next step is actually memory. What's getting in the way of what you're reading? So if I can slow down with all the dyslexic techniques and read smoothly, why can't then I recall it the next day? So it's actually really growing in the field to truly understand it's where's the breakdown? What are we going to do about the breakdown? And then what's interrupting the process to memorize? And then the third part is to recall it. What are your thoughts on that, Em? I think that's huge. My experience is a little less about the retention of information. I think I actually have a really ridiculous, like, I read things and I memorize them. I memorize song lyrics. Like, I memorize And that's probably why you did so well for so long. Yeah. Because (laughs) that skill was able to help you get through. You were able to read something, remember it, and boom, it stuck. Yeah, exactly. But a lot of the quote-unquote hacks had to do with understanding where the breakdown is in terms of not just you're having trouble keeping it all together as an adult, but what are you dropping and why are you dropping it? So in my case, one of the big things is getting out the door in the morning with all my stuff. So I literally have four alarms not counting the one that wakes me up in the morning, that remind me of specific things that I either need or need to do in the morning. That's a specific Emily hack. But on the flip side, I had to understand that mornings were a problem and that having all my stuff in the morning was a problem. And so that is one strategy that I've developed to work with my specific brain and figure out how to keep moving and keep adulting. It's really that general functionality and adulting less so than learning that trips me up. But but, but that is exactly what I was talking about. That coaching skill, you're the hack you called it, set alarms is your ability to recall 
what you have to do and how what next mm-hmm. step and things like that that gets skewed when you don't have that strategy of helping you recall and stay focused and pay attention to the time. That's interesting because Emily's is more behavioral if what I'm hearing is like the recall of certain behaviors you might need to Mm -hmm. quote unquote adult. Yeah. And then there's the recall of actual information, Jamie, that you're talking about with academia. Well, just life. Like I will be having a session with a client and something pops into my head. Dude, if I do not write it down and put it on a sticky note right then and there, I will not remember that I'm supposed to call the doctor for another week. So it's understanding how your brain works, how it interferes with the communication with others, how it impacts others, how forgetfulness impacts others, how your brain impacts you, your relationships, and your success. So one of the things we as a guild, as a podcast, have stressed from the get-go is the importance of having a high-functioning team and to be a part of something that really is able to move forward. What suggestions do you have for someone who is neurodivergent and finds themselves striving and struggling to be on a team and working with people? I know that's going to depend on what their neurodivergent category is. But any suggestions you have for someone who's really struggling to be successful on a team? The first thing I would tell you is you got to know yourself. Mm -hmm. You got to know what works and doesn't work. And then the second aspect of that is structure. If I do not have my schedule written out, I will double book, triple book a client. I've done it. Making sure you centralize your information. Where is everything? What do you do, Emily, to help you get through a team? So... Honestly, there's a little bit having to do, like you said, know yourself or cognizance of your own strength. But one of the things I think I am strong at is realizing strengths in other people. Jenny, how many times did you have to make calendar appointments for me? Every damn day. (laughs) Every day. Yes, all the time. And that's because what I realize is that Jenny is a very organized person in terms of how she sees dates and how she books things. So just like you, I would be double booking, triple booking in this situation. I'd be like, Jenny, can you put this on the calendar, send that out and make sure it's And Then it would alert me and I would have meeting strategies all figured out and collaborative note taking. So again, if I had thrown something in a place that it wouldn't be quickly referential later, we could work together on getting that back in the morphics. And Jenny, I legit, both of you, Casey and Jenny, but Jenny, particularly because you were my partner day to day for so many years, when you're working on a team as someone who's neurodivergent, and you find somebody who is able to apply strategies very seamlessly that can help you, you honor and recognize that in that other person and let them know that what they're doing is helping you Mm -hmm. and try to figure out what you can do and what your special talents are to help them back. So I'm sure that there are some things that I have offered as a coach that Jenny isn't as comfortable engaging in or that I'm just particularly strong at. I think I'm really exceptionally creative and can think very, very quickly. And I think that sometimes the way my brain hops from topic to topic might help in coaching conversations because when that light bulb goes off, I'll follow it. However, it's that give and take of knowing what you're good at, but also being recognizant of what your team members are good at and how that can fit into that puzzle of balancing out the scales in terms of some of the things that I'm not as strong at. 
And the other piece I would add is when you're working in a team, it's actually very important. Pay attention to your flooding, what's overloading. How many texts are you getting? How many emails are you getting? And how many times they said, oh, I emailed it to you. Yeah, at 10 o'clock. But then you're 40 emails Mm, deep deep. and you forget what came in in the morning. So I'll have a client text me. I forgot to text him two days later because the flooding of information via media these days is so large making sure that you have a checks and balance in so you're not missing crucial details that came in at 10 o'clock when you're forgetting it at 6 p.m because you've had 40 texts i think i left my phone home one day and when i got back home there was 33 text messages that came in. Well, no wonder I'm distracted all day. I'm talking to a client and a text comes in, or I'm working on a report and a text comes in. So making sure you limit your input that's coming in as much as you can. And how do you go about limiting when the demands are so high when you're adulting and you have bosses that tell you you got to have this done or you have this ready? So is there anything that you found helpful to organize that to get to it at maybe another time? Like Emily talked about with the alarms, I'll set alarms for me to go back. This is the go back and double check that I didn't miss Mm -hmm. emails. At 6 p.m. before I walk out the door, I have to scroll through and say, what did I miss? It's remembering to remember. Yeah. It's your ability to pause and schedule the time in your day for those checks and balances. Yeah, it sounds like intentional routine making. Yeah, it is interesting that you had mentioned like that routine or structure, like we create these structures for ourselves. And sometimes like you had done, Jenny, you unconsciously create structures that help your teammates. And these are ways that can help people be successful in the team. One other thing I would add for team functioning, maybe is just increasing the communication and the normalization of talking about our neurodivergence as well. This is me trying to bring an increase in openness about how I talk about my ADHD and how I relate to it as a professional and how it works in my teams. One of the things I really need to do is be honest with myself and be honest with my teammates that, yeah, maybe the keeper of the calendars shouldn't be me. There's a good (laughs) reason for that, you know? And, And I offer to people, please, I will forget. If I forget, please remind me. Like, sometimes Mm -hmm. we're uncomfortable. Should I remind them? Should I not? No, welcome it. I will do my best to remember this. If I don't get it by Friday, please follow up with a reminder. It's communicating with our teams what we all need in order to Mm -hmm. be successful. So, like, I need to spend the first hour when I get to work organizing and getting my day ready because of that flooding, Jamie, that you mentioned. Like there's just so much coming down the pipe from so many different sources. I need to just like tunnel and I'm not neurodivergent. Like I can't classify myself as that. And that's just part of that adulting piece, Jenny, that you mentioned. So we have talked a little bit about how providing our students, all students, both neurotypical and neurodivergent with opportunities for personalized learning. Are there any other resources, Jamie, that you would recommend any teachers, educators who are looking to develop their understanding more fully about how they can serve their neurodivergent students? As much as the internet is a blessing and a time suck. The reality is teaching neurodivergent students 
concepts that need more than just words via reading or words via lecturing? How do we make it a multi-sensory stimulus? You know, if you're teaching anatomy at the high school level or you're becoming a nurse, how do I recall this information with ease? Pictures, stories, visual things that will be able to help us create a better understanding of whatever we're trying to take on. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I did learn this year that I think is really, really cool, and I didn't understand it, I was taking the final training before I took my test. Like, all right, that's it. I'm taking a five-day class. They taught me, well, your left side of your brain is language. Mm -hmm. Your right side of your brain and memory is visual. So when you're taking a test, and you see a question, you're like, I think it's A, but I'm not sure. Go with what you think, because what is happening is, is your visual memory is remembering without words being encoded in it. But we second guess ourselves because we don't have the language to put to help us remember why that's the answer. So understanding which side of the brain you remember easily, utilizing multiple stories, vision boards, and other access to be able to retain that information and recall it. So if you have a hard concept to learn, how can you create a story with the words? So for example, in my psych test stuff, I had to learn different age brackets to different skill set. So I had to remember that two kids walked into 7-Eleven which was actually the 7 to 11 age bracket. Ah. So how do you create something? So when I see this on a test or in a meeting and I can't just access this exact thing, you will actually access stories more than you will just rote learning. Look at Casey. She's like glowing. I'm sorry. She likes to nerd out on this stuff. It's the power of story, right? It's the power of narrative. Mm -hmm. It's what makes Mm -hmm. learning sticky. It's what makes things. Yeah, I am like totally hardcore girl crushing on you right now. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Emily, you would see my office. There's sticky notes all over (laughs) my desk because it's a thought okay i gotta keep writing it's a thought i gotta keep writing when i'm writing my reports or something you are my people sticky notes everywhere (laughs) and stuff that i will probably forget on a sticky note jenny where does it go do you remember yes on the inside of your wrist on the inside of my wrist (laughs) yeah but even trying to remember what psychologist went with what theory I would try the sticky notes on the I put them on the wall and I tried matching Mm -hmm. I couldn't pull it hours and hours I could not connect the two until I created a story about pearls who created self-psychology and I drew out a hand mirror with pearls around it with self in the mirror and just I needed to learn that I had to have a visual recall to pull the language. It's almost like sketch noting would have been a huge, mm-hmm. big help for you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. It didn't exist. Yeah. Right? 
Yeah. And so that's the other thing I want to point out with all of these hacks is we've mentioned adulting a couple of times, extend, extend, extend. Anything that we're talking about that can help anybody from a kindergartner learning something to somebody who is in their 30s and in higher education with these ideas of things that people can figure themselves out and apply the things that we are starting to learn that might help neurodivergent kids that we want to continue extending that conversation up to adult learners to when we train when we coach when we engage in higher learning experiences as professors or what have you and validate them that is frustrating validate them that it is hard and validate that what they're going through isn't who they are Because it's exhausting. Yeah, (laughs) real talk. But seriously, Mm. I really love that you said that. Gives me the warm fuzzies. Hugs. (laughs) Hugs. So we have had so much to talk about, and we probably could go on for another three hours. Does anyone know of any podcasts that go that long? (laughs) Yes, Critical Role. (laughs) There we go. NPR. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. It sounds like we might have to have Jamie come back. Yeah, maybe they need to be a part of you. But that said, we always like to do the whip around takeaway. And so, Jamie, we, as our guests, like to give you the option. Would you like to start us off on what your overall takeaway from this whole conversation was? Or would you like to hear all of ours first and then I'd like to hear yours first, actually, because I feel like... I was over-talking Emily, and Emily's story got stunted, so... <laughs> no! What were your aha moments? Well, first of all, I don't feel like my story got stunted. It's that nice feeling of recognizance in what somebody else is saying, especially in the context of what we brought up that has meant a lot to me, continues to mean a lot to me about the way we talk about ourselves and talk about others. Hearing you talk about the learning experiences people have not defining them and needing that continued reinforcement from our support team, whether that support team is our guild or our family or our spouse or all of the above, needing to continue to reinforce that the way we learn doesn't define us and that we are capable and intelligent and really strong learners in some other areas. But this is just the thing that makes learning hard for me. Reframe it into these are the things that I can do to work with this. And yes, I might have to work harder than a neurotypical person does in this realm. But that idea of psychologically supporting people by recognizing what they're going through and continuing to assist them in the cognitive reframing that they have to do with that self-talk and how we talk about other people as well. It's just so crucial. Can't say it enough. That hit me right in the feels. Emily, you've talked about many of my takeaways that I have written down on my two sheets of notes. But the biggest one for me is, Jamie, I've often found myself with my own child, my own four-year-old, who has some of these tendencies, I think. But really, I love your first question of what's hard about this for you? What's hard about learning for you? Because it opens up that dialogue instead of it, what's wrong? Like It gives you an Mm -hmm. actual opening Mm -hmm. to have that deep conversation that could really make a difference for that child, whether it's my own child, whether it's a student I'm working with, but that someone sees you to know something is wrong and wants to get down with you and help you identify what you need in order to be successful. So that's my big takeaway. Love it. And again, all of these, all of the above, yes, and. So in the spirit of being different, 
from what you guys just said, the takeaway that I could say is I feel even more so after this conversation, more conviction in the absolute necessity we have as a system, a system of education to be able to provide personalized learning for our students. And that is no easy task to move an entire system to scale to be able to do this. However, yes, I knew personalized learning is what's best for kids, but especially when we think of all learners and we think of the neurodivergent Mm -hmm. umbrella, that is how we are going to differentiate. That is how we're going to be able to provide learners with the type of experiences that they need to be able to feel like they can do this. But how do we get our educators on that, for lack of a better term, train, get on the train to be able to provide personalized learning. And there are strategies that go there, but now I'm seeing why it's such a dire need and why we need to do it. And to piggyback off of that by both Jamie and Emily sharing their stories, it is just as important for professional learning Yes, to find ways for us to, as leaders, personalize the learning experiences of our educators. Correct. Uh, Because it's modeling. Yeah. Yeah. They have to experience it in order to provide it. Right. Modeling, but also providing that professional courtesy and that same getting down deeply with that person to say, I want you as my staff member to be successful. What's getting in the way of you learning this? What can we do to help support you? Those are all great takeaways. No, really. I mean, I'm getting a little sentimental here, but it's my takeaway was is the lack of awareness and not understanding what to do with it. I mean, we teach children how to take notes. We teach children how to understand what a rubric is. We teach children how to do spider graphs. Like we teach how to organize thought, but I was never taught how to learn. I wasn't taught a class and all the different strategies that you can utilize to help not just learn, but be successful. I have an oldest daughter who's high-functioning autistic. I got a middle boy who is ADHD. And I'm teaching him all these strategies. But I met up against with him by nothing works, nothing works, nothing works. Where I'm the mom, of course. But in the education system, if we really took the time to say these are all the different ways to learn and be successful in life, setting alarms, there's apps today. Here's another strategy that we can end on. There's apps today that allow you to turn off your phone when studying or working on a report. It's an app. You say set it from three to four and and you kind of lock yourself out. Mm -hmm. And I'm working with clients and students all day long saying, you have to choose to use this to be successful and not have your mom and dad rag on you. Like, you know what you struggle with. If I'm writing a psych report on the computer and my phone goes ding, oh, there is text. And then now all Mm -hmm. of a sudden I'm playing my game on Heyday or something like that. Crap, I got to get back to work. Mm -hmm. So minimizing that stimulation and that flooding that comes in so we can be successful. I think that needs to be taught. Yep. Yeah, you're talking about metacognitive learning there and metacognitive thinking yes. because thinking about thinking and knowing where you currently are 
and where you want to be and being able to set goals for yourself and use those strategies you're talking about, that's another, that's a skill. And so the more we have educators having that consistently brought up in their classes, regardless of what the content is, but really it's about the essential life skill, mm-hmm. we're going to be better off because we're helping our students think about their own thinking and know thyself. So much good learning that, again, fangirling over here. So typically, Jamie, we end every episode with a game. And this one has been crafted by our dear Emily. And I think, Emily, you need to explain the context of each of these never have I ever scenarios. Okay, so as you just said, game is never have I ever. And here's the thing. One of my general life coping strategies is to be able to laugh at myself a little and again cognitive reframe and be kind to myself but every once in a while just a little bit of a giggle this is silly overly fixating and worrying about the way that i am hasn't served me well in life so instead of playing a game and risking being insensitive to any neurodiversity issues in general we are going to look at my specific brain my specific life as a person with adhd and play a little bit of never have i ever because there is a little bit of comfort as we've talked today in recognizance of self and others and Let's just see how much like me you have been in your life in this moment. So I'll actually jump in and facilitate the game since clearly the answer is yes, I have (laughs) for all these things and see where you all fall in with this. So first one is never have I ever lost something important to me in a weird place. Yes, for sure. (laughs) Never. Oh, story. I'm calling you out on that. I don't believe that. I don't lose things. I have a, everything has a home. Her batteries have labels. She has. So do my band-aids. Lo- <laughs> so here's, nobody else has to share, but I feel like I need to share this one because it's me. So the thing I've lost recently was I lost my antidepressant pills because I put them in the refrigerator. Oh, <laughs> I yep. don't know why I did that, but hence it- hack one hundred one <laughs> hack right now. I have my medication in a small container in the car in case I forget them. I have a medication in the bathroom. I have a set of medication. You know, just spread them around. Multiple- <laughs> don't just keep it in the bottle like a dum dum, and then put it in the refrigerator for some godforsaken reason. And then my husband went to go get orange juice. He's like, Casey, is this what you were looking for? Like, thanks, dear. So, yes, 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 yes. Mine is typically my car keys. They have been in parking lots. They have been hanging in doors. They have been on countertops that are not mine. You name it. My poor car keys have been there. And I feel like I just keep making my lanyard and I need one of those clappers. Where are my keys? Mm, The The tile. tile. My husband, we've got those tiles that it sings to you so you can find it again. Brilliant. (laughs) My keychains and keys just keep getting bigger. I keep thinking I won't lose them if they're humongous. Mark my words, if I am crushed to death under keys, you will know why. So the next one is, never have I ever gotten called out in school for my behavior. Oh, yeah. No. Never. Pretty good. Good girls. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I did it once, but it was because I was being stupid, and then I never did it again. So it wasn't like a reoccurring thing. So you have the power of pause right before you do. (laughs) Because I was shamed. I was was, kicked out of my pit. It was with good reason. Mine was with good reason, yeah. 
Yep. I got kicked out of fifth grade classroom more than three times. Yes. Just please leave. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. I hear you. All right. Next one. This one's a funny one. Never have I ever worn an item of clothing inside out in public. Yes. Jenny? You guys, I'm going to seem like a jerk in this game. Never. <laughs> You're just so neurotypical. I yeah. am. I'm just basic. Oh, the bad Not days is when I put mascara on one eye and I forget to do it on the other. <laughs> oh, I didn't even think of that. Cosmetic fail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or two different color shoes or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, it's just because I'm lazy and I don't always double check my laundry when I fold it. <laughs> I got through like half a day with like my work pants on backwards once. They were just full on. <laughs> Your so work like, pants these don't, on these don't feel right. Yeah, they didn't. I was just, they didn't feel right, but I was in, in a hurry and I was moving through my day and I just, <laughs> yeah, just rolled with that and discovered. I secretly feel ya. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Not <laughs> so secretly mean. anymore. Now it's on a podcast. <laughs> All right. So last one. We probably already talked about this, but hey, let's see who else falls in with this. Never have I ever set more than three alarms or reminders in a day to get organized. Nope. Mm, I probably say no to that one. Same. I've Sitting got alone with my four alarms. But like I said, that's okay. It's a number one coaching strategy. Multiple alarms. Mm. Yep. My little ones have their very first day of kindergarten tomorrow. So I have extra alarms set for that. I think we're up to like five mm-hmm. or six now. Yeah, this will be awesome. All right. Last one. Never have I ever had such a pervasive new idea that I had to stop in the middle of something and write it down. I do it all the time. What are you talking about? <laughs> Post-its. <laughs> Post-its. And I'm talking to you and I just oh, thought, write it down. Otherwise, I won't remember it. Yep. Jenny, Casey? Yes. For the I time. email so it to trouble. myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I text myself all the time. Yes. <laughs> this one I can actually say yes. I Yay. Now being a parent of three, I need to write things down or I forget them. Ha, I knew we were going to get you. Got me on one. Welcome to our side. <laughs> <laughs> Well, ladies, thank you very much for taking the time to have me today. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Truly Setting my alarms for tomorrow. (laughs) Setting all my alarms. Really our pleasure. We have learned a ton from you. I think our listeners can learn a ton from you. And really appreciate you taking the time to add not just your perspectives, but your incredible knowledge on this topic. As Casey said, a huge learning episode for all of mm-hmm. us, but so, so important. So we are we're incredibly grateful that you joined us today. Thank you it's so much, fun. Jamie. Thank you, Jamie. Yeah, thank oh, you. You're welcome. You're Peace so out, great. guys. Thank Have you. a good Thanks, night. Jamie, thank you. Bye. Great to meet you. She's awesome. I got her brain so big. I understand so one of every three words. Encoding flooding, what? <laughs> she <laughs> is amazing awesome idea all right i'll do a quick pause and then i'll jump in and taste what to come or i keep all of that in the episode (laughs) (laughs) go ahead Okay, so next is a taste of what's to come. We're going to be covering one on the dark side of the guild. So we talk a lot about highly functioning teams and guilds, but we want to flip the coin over and think about what it could look like and what are some things we need to be aware of when a guild is not so functional and might not be serving members at the best capacity. So we are really excited to talk about these topics. Hope you can join us in upcoming guild meetings. And that's it for this episode of the Grounded Learners Guild. Many thanks to you for choosing to engage with our guild's content as we passionately continue to advocate for adult learners with transparent conversations about the world of education, impactful leadership, and the power of high-functioning teaming. If you'd like to connect with the guild, 
the power of the PLN continues. You can find us on our website, thegroundedlearnersguild.com, and on Twitter, at GroundedLGuild, at C. Veacher, at TechCoachM, and at Jenny Labrie, using the hashtag GLGPodChat. Feedback is a powerful tool that allows us to be responsive to the topics that matter to you most. If you haven't yet already, or if you're finding us for the first time, how about leaving us a review? It helps us to improve our work, allows us to bring you quality and customized content, and assists others in finding our guild as well. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you stream. Thanks again for joining us, Casey, Emily, and me, Jenny, in today's episode of the Grounded Learners Guild. See you at the next guild meeting. And in the meantime, do your best to stay grounded. Grounded.